Let's just get a show of hands real quick. Who repented this morning? Not many people repented this morning. Who repented yesterday? Some of you. Some of you are, uh, are confused by the question, I can tell. That's okay. Uh, we'll talk about why I asked that as we go through this. Repenting has been part of the gospel from the very beginning. Uh, if you begin in the book of Matthew, which we will this morning, you think about John. John preached repentance, didn't he? Uh, as we read in the book of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that phrase at hand mean? It's soon, right? The kingdom of heaven will soon be here. It is coming closely. Uh, so repent. He says in Acts 19, when uh, Paul is talking about uh, John, he's saying, okay, they co he goes to Ephesus and he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard there's a Holy Spirit. And then, of course, he says, into what were you baptized? And they say, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. That this baptism was, and it's a little bit mm, vague, a sign of repentance it was an act of repentance. It was a statement of repentance, maybe. But that's what that baptism was. John's baptism, as he came preaching and preparing the way of the Lord, part of his preparation, part of the preparation for Jesus was, you guys need to start repenting and thinking about repentance and turning and changing the way that you're living. Change your mind, change your ways, change your thoughts, and and part of the vital preparation for that was Jesus was going to be preaching about repentance, right? Matthew 4, 12 through 13, and then skipping to verse 17. So this is, uh, we've skipped a bunch of, that's where the dot, dot, dots are. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. An exact quotation of John, right? Repent. Change your ways. Change your thoughts. Change what you're doing. Change your attitude. Change your actions. Turn away from the old way and repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then later on in Matthew 11, after he's done some miracles, and he's done some great things by then, turned the water to wine, he's healed some people, he's, he's uh, performed many mighty works, mostly healing and casting out demons, right? He's done the, the feeding of the 5,000 and the miraculous feeding of people several times, so he's done these mighty works. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, those miracles that he's been doing for the last uh, seven chapters. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works had been done in you, that had been done in you, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. What's Jesus' condemnation here? If these other people, and Tyre and Sidon, let's be clear about Tyre and Sidon, those were cities that in the Old Testament, in the prophets, in the major and minor prophets, were denounced over and over and over again. Tyre and Sidon were wicked, wicked, unrighteous cities. 
They were enemies of Israel. They did not do what God wanted. And God pronounced judgment on them again and again. And what does Jesus say? If Tyre and Sidon, the people of Tyre and Sidon, these wicked earthly cities, had seen the things that you guys had seen, they would have repented. They would have changed. They would have turned. They would have responded. So we see from the very beginning of the gospel that repentance is part of the deal, right? As we saw last week, salvation, of course, involves some sort of response. Uh, We looked, of course, at Romans 10, which we've looked at numerous, numerous times, right? Those who call on the Lord will be saved. It's some sort of response. It's not just mental assent. It's not just agreement. It's not just uh, intellectual understanding of the gospel. But it involves some sort of response. And repentance is the beginning of that response. If we think about the knowledge that we've acquired of God, the knowledge of the gospel, the knowledge of his grace, the knowledge of his love, the knowledge of judgment, that's part of it too, right? The knowledge of judgment. We think about the knowledge that we've acquired from God... Repentance is the first response, or should be, I say is, should be the first response once you believe. Now, I've said this many times before. If you're the kind of person that highlights in your Bible, some people think it's sort of sacrilegious to write in your Bible. It's fine, guys. You can write in your Bibles. If you're the kind of person that writes in your Bibles, highlight, underline, Stan used to do a thing where at the front of his Bible, he would write uh, several topics in sort of the, most Bibles, they have that weird blank page. I don't know why there's a blank, well, maybe for this, maybe this is the reason there's a blank page. Uh, He would write topics, right? So he'd have faith, he'd have repentance, he'd have whatever, these different topics. And he would write the the verses that he wanted to talk to people about, right? So if, if it came up in conversation, these were the verses that he would use. If you're the kind of person, do this, write this verse down, for repentance. This is the seminal passage on repentance. It describes what it is, I think, in great detail, but more importantly, it describes where it comes from. What, what is repentance? So let's read this. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter did grieve you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. And this is an important two-word idea. Without regret. We'll come back to that in a moment. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. This list of qualities is very interesting, and we'll return to this as we go through the lesson. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. How many times does he talk about grieving? I made you grieve, the letter grieved you, you were grieved into repenting. Godly grief produces repentance. Godly grief. So let's play this out. You hear the news of the gospel for the first time. That's going to be something like, if the person's describing it in the things that they need to describe, it'll be something like Jesus' is perfection and Jesus' is godhood and Jesus' is life and his sacrifice. And it'll be something about sin, right? That you're sinful and these are the things that God doesn't like. And, and then the result of that sin, judgment and condemnation and punishment. And, and that'll be said in some order. However, that's said. It'll be different, different circumstances. 
The logical conclusion, if you believe that information, that Jesus is perfect, he died, sacrificed for your sins, that you are facing judgment because of your sin, grief is the appropriate response. Grief, why? Grief because I've sinned against my creator. Grief because Jesus had to die for me. Grief because I might have to face condemnation in hell. Grief is the appropriate response. Which is why you see in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, the first sermon. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ as Jesus, whom you crucified. And when they heard this, what? They were cut to the heart. They were grieved and probably scared and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? True repentance comes from a place of grief. That I understand that I have sinned against God and that my sin made Jesus' sacrifice necessary. That the Savior of the earth died because I am selfish. That should produce grief, shouldn't it? Now, the reason I asked you who repented this morning or yesterday, or we could do even last week. Every time we sin, shouldn't there be grief? This godly grief? We'll come back to that idea. The grief of the gospel. What grief should this belief produce? One, oh, I already said a bunch of this stuff. Grief at the sacrifice of the Savior. Grief at the necessity of that sacrifice. And here's a big one. Grief at my part in it. This is, we can't lose this. Maybe sometimes we make the sacrifice too sort of philosophical and, and too big. He died for the whole world. He died for the sins of the world. Let's bring it in a little more specific. He died for you because of your sins. Right? Don't think about it in these grand global terms. Think about it in your terms. That because you committed sin, Jesus had to die on the cross. Grief at the realization of my lostness. Oh man, I'm going to be lost. I don't have a relationship with Jesus. I'm going to go to hell. That should be, produce some grief. Grief at the knowledge of why, what that should be, what sin is, what sin is and means. Now, this godly grief then engenders some sort of action or change as opposed to the accept, simple acceptance of facts, right? I could have grief at that and then just do nothing. Live the way I'm living. Continue going on and being sad. That would be that worldly grief, right? So let's read these underlined parts. You were grieved into repenting. That repentance, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. As opposed to the worldly grief, which does nothing, right? The different, you might feel that grief if you accept the facts of the gospel. But if you do not do the next logical action of repenting, then, ooh, what did that accomplish? That's not good. There we go. What did it accomplish if you felt that grief and did nothing? That's the worldly grief that leads to death, right? You're not going to be saved. You're not going to respond. You're not going to glorify God. You're not going to have a relationship with Him. Repentance is the outcome or should be the outcome of that grief. Let's focus on this list of words here. Oops. What did I do? Oh, this list of words. Eagerness to clear yourselves. Oh man, I'm lost. Jesus died for me. 
I like what they said in Acts 2.36. What shall we do? What do I need to do to make that right? The eagerness to clear myself, the indignation, the fear, the longing, the zeal, the punishment, these intense emotions and attitudes and responses, these are the things that come or that repentance comes from. So let's put it this way. If you did not feel any of these emotions when you learned the gospel truth, if you did not feel any of this stuff, I'm not sure you really believed it. I'm not sure you really have faith if you don't feel these things. Zeal, indignation, fear, desire to clear yourself, ultimately grief. If you don't feel these things, have you really internalized the facts of the gospel? Have you internalized the sacrifice of the Savior? Really accepted what that means and what that is? That Almighty God had to live 30 years on this earth, had to die on the cross for your sins? If you have not had any sort of emotional response to that, you have not believed it. Or at least you haven't understood it. Repentance comes from this place in the heart. Who will be saved begins with those who take this ball of emotions that the gospel should engender and use it to change. Let's talk about the word repentance for a minute. Acts 3.19 Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. This idea of turning back, that I'm walking this way, right? Oh, oh, I, there's something up here that I need to, oh, I'm not going to go that way anymore. I'm going to go this way. That's what repentance is, isn't it? Now, the thing that I, as I'm walking this way, the thing that I saw, truth of the gospel right here, the end result of, of sin being death further on. I don't want to go that way, right? I don't want death. I don't want judgment. I don't want condemnation. I'm going to turn around and go back this way. And go towards God and go toward God, what God wants. Acts 8, 21 and 22. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. This oh, Okay, so let's get to the context. This is Simon the magician, right? He's, he's converted by Philip and, and there's many things going on there. And Philip's doing miracles and they come down. And uh, Peter and John come down and they start bestowing the gifts of miracles. And, and Simon's like, ooh, I want that power. So he, he wants to buy it from him, right? And then this is Peter's response. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, if that pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. What is Peter telling him to do? Okay, you wanted to buy this gift. You wanted to buy the miraculous ability. Really, he wanted to buy the ability to pass on miracles. Is Peter going to be okay if he's just like, oh, I'm not going to do that, but still wants to do that? If he still has that desire in his heart, if he still has a misunderstanding of how miraculous gifts should be viewed. Peter is telling him, change not just what you do, but change the way you think about it. Change the way you approach miracles. Change your worldview of what miracles are and should be. Stop doing the bad thing true, but also change the intent of your heart. Not just that he stopped asking for the ability to give miracles, but that he stopped viewing miracles as a means of making money. It's not just about changing what you do. It's fundamentally about changing what you believe and think and want. 
right? Changing the intent of your heart. Acts 26.20. But declared first to those, this is Paul, declared first to those in Damascus, then to Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and also the Gentiles, that they should repent. And there's that word turn again, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So the Gentiles are living their own lives. They don't want anything to do with God. They may not even know about God. They're taught the gospel. And then what? Turn to God. Focus on Him. Think about Yahweh. Think about what Yahweh wants. Think about what is good and right and perfect and just. That Philippians 4, 8 passage, which I want everybody to memorize. Right? Whatever true and noble and worthy of praise. But then do what? Deeds in keeping with that. Yeah, maybe I've changed my mind. Maybe I've changed the intent of my heart. But then if my life has not changed at all, what, what was the point of that? If I'm not doing anything different, then, then what was the point of changing the intent of my heart? Of changing the things that I accept and believe and know to be true? Of, of focusing on God and turning to Him? What was the point if nothing in my life changed? What are the odds that you're doing everything perfect at this moment? Zero percent. Zero percent. You are not doing everything perfect at this moment. And I know that for a fact. Which means what? At some point, you're going to need to repent again. And probably keep repenting. Not probably. You definitely need to keep repenting as long as you keep acquiring new information about God and about what's righteous and about what God wants and about your own sin. Every time you're acquiring new information about that, you need to be repenting, right? Let's keep reading. Revelation 16, 8 and 9. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and all, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. This is that worldly grief, right? Now, I think this is figurative, obviously, symbolic. But it does tell us something about repentance. The discipline and the judgment of God, instead of leading to grief that produces repentance, leads to anger at God. How could you do this to me? God, that's not fair. God, I hate you. God, why are you this way? Instead of turning and giving him glory, right? When we accept and understand the truth of the gospel, the response should be that I'm going to change whatever it was that I was doing that caused me that grief, living in opposition to God, rejecting His will, not doing what is pleasing to Him. I'm going to change all those things and start doing the things that give God glory. In each case, this turning was the natural extension of a new way of thinking about the world. New knowledge leading to the logical conclusion of that knowledge. If I know that God is real, if I know that Jesus is the Son of God, if I know that He died for my sins, the only reasonable thing to do is to do what He wants. Anything else is insane. Repentance is the natural conclusion of proper belief. It comes from the acceptance of new knowledge and the emotions that knowledge could should create in us, right? The zeal, the longing, the indignation, the grief, the fear, the eagerness to clear yourselves. Those are the things that should be engendered by belief in the gospel. And then repentance is the conclusion of that. Do we stop acquiring new spiritual knowledge once we respond to the gospel? 
Hopefully you acquired some new spiritual knowledge today. I mean, if I'm teaching well, hopefully. Maybe not in the sermon, but maybe you did in class. Like, hopefully we're acquiring new spiritual knowledge all the time, right? Like, that's the point of growth. We're growing. When should our spiritual learning stop? When we're dead. That's it. That's when it should stop, right? So at what point in our walk with God might we experience this godly grief anew? If I'm constantly acquiring new information about his will, and if I know that as the nature of the flesh is that I tend to live not in accordance with that will, then that grief that I am grieving the Father because I am living contrary to his will and I'm living contrary to the Son's commands should be a pretty regular thing. And in fact, I would say it should increase. Not maybe the amount. Maybe you don't feel it very much because you're not sinning as much. But when you have growth and understanding of who God is, we should actually maybe feel more grieved that I am sinning against him. Because I know what that, I didn't know as well, well what that meant. I didn't really understand that as much when I was first a Christian. But as I grow in my knowledge and my understanding of God, and I, I appreciate his love more, and I appreciate his grace more, there should be maybe even more intense grief that I'm letting him down. Which would hopefully, again, what? Lead to repentance, right? So when do I stop repenting? Well, there's two options. One, you can stop repenting when you stop sinning. That's accurate, right? That's valid. If you stop sinning, sure, go ahead and stop repenting. You don't have anything to repent of. But more likely, what's going to be the case when you die, right? That's it. That's the same thing. We're going to keep repenting all the time. Repentance is one of the responses to the gospel that never stops. Who will be saved? Those who repent, not those who have repented. Those who continue to repent. Those are the people who will be saved. The alternative, of course, what? If we refuse to keep repenting, then we have stated then to God, oh, I'm good enough now. No more sin in my life. I'm perfect. I don't need to repent anymore. Which means that whatever sin you are currently committing, because I know you are, I know you're committing some sin. I don't know what it is. I know you're committing something. Which means that that sin that you have in your life that you're refusing to repent of is eventually going to do what? It is eventually going to come between you and God again. Right? It is eventually going to lead to such a point that you are no longer in the kingdom of God. Which means only those who continue to repent will be saved. Right? It's the thing that starts our salvation, and it is the thing that will continue in perpetuity as long as we are saved. Which is why we're beginning with this idea. 1 Peter 2, 1-3 Put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What does that mean? Raise your hand if you've tasted that the Lord is good. If you're a Christian, your hand should be up. Okay? What does that mean, tasted that the Lord is good? You have experienced salvation, haven't you? You've experienced forgiveness. You have known His goodness. Then What? Continually grow. Continually grow in that. Second Peter 3, 17 through 18. 
You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. You had stability once, don't lose it again. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be both glory now and to the day of eternity. Amen. If you believe, what is stopping you from repenting? The invitation is twofold, as it has been in this series. If you're in this room today, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You believe that He died after living a perfect life. You believe that He rose again to live forever. You believe that His death was the thing that put sin to death, that defeated the devil. You believe that you could have that relationship with Him. If you believe all of that and haven't repented, what are you waiting for? Right? What are you waiting for? We could do that today because I don't know if you're going to get two hours from now. And if you're a Christian in this room, somebody who's been living a spiritual life, but you've wandered away. You've stopped repenting. You've stopped seeking God's will. Know that that is putting you in eternal danger. And I'm begging you, please repent and turn again. And if you need help with that, I'm willing to help you. I'm sure 100 people in this room are willing to help you with that because it's the most important thing we can do, right? To repent and turn to God. There's no shame in coming forward. When somebody comes forward, and I've meant to say this for a while, I need to say this every so often. When someone comes forward and responds to the invitation, for the rest of us in that room, it should be a cause for joy, right? Not a cause for judgment. Maybe we think, ooh, what did that person do? That person must be awful. That's horrible. That's a terrible attitude. What should you instead be thinking? I'm so glad that this person is seeking God. I'm so glad that this person is allowing us an opportunity to serve them. I'm so glad that this person has the humility that God expects of us. That should be the response of the rest of us when someone comes forward. Because they are doing what is right. Repenting and turning to, to God. If you need to do that today, I'm begging you, please come. 